Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? Hey, listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I got to do some quick full disclosure for everybody. Um, we have scheduled for later today a podcast that I've been looking forward to for a very long time with Francis Fukuyama um, on his book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, but they requested that we hold it until um, closer to pub date, which is next week. So we're going to do that. Um, and then, so I thought, Okay, well, we just had this Elon Musk news with the with the um, with the Twitter, and there's this Disney fight that's roiling everybody. It's a, it seems like a perfect issue climate for one David French to do, if not an emergency pod, a pod imbued with a sense of emergency. And um, but here's the real kicker: uh, I came down with some horrible bug. I don't know if it's COVID. Uh, my fever keeps spiking back up. I got, I've had a really rough last like 18 hours. Um, and so there may come a point where David is basically like a, a boxer keeping me up to go another round is just holding me up on this thing. And I apologize in advance. And, um, and with that, uh, my dispatch colleague, David French, welcome back to the remnant. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So, um, I guess let's start with the Disney stuff. Okay. Cause like I'm, 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 there's another one of these issues where I'm sort of a, uh, as I, I think I put it last week, a prairie fire of nuance. Um, <laughs> right. I think that Charlie's position and your position is on the merits, the correct position. But, you know, there are, there are times in life when doing as a sort of a matter of prudence or statesmanship or whatever, there are times when doing something that's sort of indefensible on the merits has a salutary uh, effect anyway. That's the argument that you get from the smarter, you know, not from the people who call right. Disney groomer, whatever, but from the smarter people, you know, like Rich Lowry, that's his sort of position is, is like, and it's sort of Ben Shapiro's as far as I can gather, which I want to circle back to. But it's basically this idea that if the left has, free reign if left-wing woke activists have free reign to bully corporations into being woke capitalism and getting out of their lane um there's an advantage to swapping them swatting them with a rolled up newspaper to get them to stay in their lane and that there are consequences for piss you know lots of corporate america as we talked about a bunch they respond to a handful of tweets as if it's real america and they're so there's it's sort of like corgis who can like steer giant cattle by little nips you know um and 
uh, having it, having corporate America think twice, um, before giving into the left, um, because they'll pay a price with the right as, you know, the Michael Jordan Republicans buy sneakers too, kind of thing. Yeah. The argument is, is that, yeah, 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 you're right. And it probably won't ever happen because they're going to find a reasonable compromise, but there is a, this is a useful thing. Just how do you address that? Well, I just don't think that's the way this works. I think that the, <laughs> in what context has smacking people de-escalated the culture war? I mean, there, I haven't seen any context where sort of this sort of right-wing fantasy that we're going to punch them in the nose and they're going to kind of go yelping off into the, into the darkness. It, that just doesn't happen. Uh, and especially doesn't happen if, we, if you're punching in the nose is actually unlawful and you end up losing a uh, court battle and paying attorney's fees. <laughs> that's not necessarily something that's terribly a, a much of a deterrent. Now, I do think commercial, you know, a, if, if a business begins to lose market share, that, that might be much more of a deterrent. Um, if a business starts to, if its stock goes down and it's, and it's tied to, it's gotten too woke for its customer base. I think that that's a deterrent. In other words, something impacting the bottom line in a legal, tangible way. But this sort of idea that you get on Twitter of we're going to punish you with our fury, that just inflames. Uh, it doesn't It doesn't really deter anybody. I mean, by being exactly the sort of repressive folks that the internal woke constituency says that you are, um, I'm not sure that that's um, diminishing the internal woke constituency. So I, I just don't, I don't see the evidence for this, that this argument that we're going to escalate, we're going to smack people around, and then that's going to make them retreat in some tangible way. I, I just haven't seen the evidence. And I, and I, and to be clear, in any discussions of Disney, I have no real uh, regard for Disney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like this is a company that has been very pleased to do to do business in China. And very, um, you know, and, and, and extremely keen on intervening in certain contexts in American politics. I, I you know, I have a basic rule when it comes to all this woke corporate stuff. I'm going to respect you the moment you apply proportionate level of outrage to China or Saudi Arabia or another repressive country that you do business in as you do to like a Georgia religious freedom law. Um, so I don't, these companies and, and all of their political and corporate activism, I don't, not only do I not like it, I don't respect it. Uh, but you know, one of the things about the constitution is I don't have to like your expression. I don't have to respect your expression, uh, for it to be protected by the first amendment. Yeah. So this is where the flames of the uncontrolled prairie fire of nuance start licking at the front door of the barn. Um, (laughs) I agree with you about, so this is a distinction I made in my column yesterday, right before I took ill. I think that there is, there is a, there's a real possibility. Um, you know, if you think about like the fights over the Georgia voting law with major league baseball and all that kind of stuff, where a lot of companies got out over their skis and they just don't want to do that again. So that stuff is kind of going away. 
So I think there is a more legitimate case to be made that if not Disney, right? So it's like Michael Ledeen used to have this line, which I thought was funny. I kind of have a problem with it now, but he used to say every 10 years or so, the United States needs to pick up a small crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world that we can, right? A very Machiavellian kind of point of view. And I don't, I don't endorse that. Um, but even if it doesn't change Disney's behavior, because I think you're right that it's very embedded there, at the margins, I think there are a bunch of other corporations that are just looking at that and saying, I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff. You know, any like special improvement districts, you know, are the equivalent thereof that oil companies probably have and all that kind of thing. So on the on the business side, I think the defenders of this, which again, I'm I'm sort of a half devil's advocate on this, have a better case. Where I agree with you entirely is that forget the corporations for a second. The mobs will just take this as a reward for mob-like behavior. Hey, hey, we called everybody groomers and we said you're you're pedophiles and and Ron DeSantis did what we wanted and even got a pound of flesh after he got the bill that he wanted passed. And you know, when you subsidize mobs, you get more mobs. And I or when you reward mobs, you get more mobs. And I think so. We are now seeing a right wing. All the stuff I've been saying, we've been saying about David Shore and the cap, the captivity of the woke young people in the Democratic Party. We're now seeing a version of that with the Republican Party, also with just Twitter driven. Oh, totally, totally. And and you know, one of the things that, that I, I there's a couple of things here. One was said very brilliantly by Charlie in an editor's podcast, Charlie Cook in an editor's yeah, that was podcast. Great. Yeah, it was really good. One thing that, and, and I really wanted to drill down on this point, um, the the high water mark of sort of woke corporations bullying states into compliance had long passed. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to 2015 and remember Mike Pence and the Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act um, controversy where Pence caved really quickly yeah. to the, you know, this sort of corporate boycott threat and the Indiana legislature caved really quickly to this thing. And I think it caught a lot of folks off guard how justifiably angry a lot of Republicans were at Pence and at the Indiana legislature and others for caving to that corporate pressure. And so what you've seen since that time is essentially um, red state after red state after red state has passed conservative legislation. There have been boycott threats. There have been sort of, uh, there's been anger expressed and they've just gone ahead and done it anyway. I mean, the wave of heartbeat bills, for example, I mean, just a wave of heartbeat bills all across the South, um, religious freedom acts all across, you know, parts of red America. And it just doesn't work anymore. It just, it, it's, it, it's sort of like treated as background noise and almost an, as an opportunity for a Republican politician to demonstrate their strength. Oh, they wanted me, you know, the corporations came after me and we passed the law anyway. As Charlie says very well, that's all winning. You know, that's winning. If, if there's a heartbeat bill and Disney saying, well, we might not film, uh, in your state anymore and you pass it anyway, because you believe it is a just and, and if it's a law that is just, and it is aimed at preserving human life and you're going to pass it, uh, anyway, and call their bluff and say, you do what you're going to do, but we're going to do what we're going to do. That's all winning, you know? And, and so what you're dealing with here now is, and I think you said it well, is this 
Twitter mindset that says, no, 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 winning isn't enough. Um, what you have to do is you have to punch people. You have to make them hurt. You have to make them feel it. Now, the irony here, though, is, you know, Disney may sue or Disney may not sue. I mean, Chick-fil-A didn't sue when it was excluded from certain jurisdictions. It could have. It chose not to for its own reasons. But the interesting thing is if Disney sues and wins, what actually ends up happening is that you establish a precedent that will sort of chisel these special districts and things like that into granted a little bit more. Right. <laughs> because you're going to have to, if you're a state, you're going to have to sort of show, wait a minute, we're getting rid of this special district, not for discriminatory reasons, but because it's an economic reform, it's, you know, neutral, you know, we're applying neutral principles. So it's, you know, the, the classic temptation to censorship is always that sort of low hanging short-term fruit victory. And then you push back, you win, and then what ends up happening is you bolster your opposition. You often pay money as a result of what you've done, and you've established a precedent. And, and so there's a very real chance. Again, don't know what Disney will do, but there's a more than small chance that this turns into sort of a short-term Twitter win and a very and a long-term loss for um, a, a long-term loss for DeSantis and a long-term loss for states that want to have a little bit more flexibility in how they're, um, you know, states who don't want to be locked into these special deals. Yeah, I mean, so uh, yesterday, um, to write my LA Times column, which will be up on the dispatch by the time by tomorrow, I called Charlie. And, um, and he walked me through in probably more detail than I imagined I was going to get the history of the Reedy Creek improvement right. district. And, um, I had not realized that, you know, cause like, as, as he said on the editor's podcast, and as he said in his piece, there's some, depending on how you count them, there are like 1200 independent special improvement districts. And there's like a total of 2000 special improvement districts. And, uh, the basic deal that the Republicans made <laughs> with um, right. Di Disney 50 years ago, like I, I, I'd, so I just, I'll get, I'll get the explainer out. The basic deal they made was there was this massive amount of land, massive. And the reason why they wanted to do it, and I, I learned all of this from Charlie, I want to give him credit. In Disneyland in California, the whole point of, the Magic Kingdom was like once you're inside, you're supposed to be, you know, transported away to a different place. And the problem was they didn't buy enough land in the beginning. And so you could see Texaco signs and Howard Johnson signs just outside the park. And so they wanted a right. big piece of land. And so there was this vast, you know, there were some orchards and there were some swamps. And that was about it. And they struck a deal with the state of Florida that said, we will buy all of this and we will build on our own dime all of Disney World, all of its sundry associated things, and we will run it as a sort of independent thing because it doesn't make sense to have, you know, guys doing pest control from the Orange County government coming in. We know how to do that, blah, 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 blah. So they built this, this giant thing and it was a win-win for both because in exchange for having a, some exemption from some zoning laws and some tax laws, uh, this wasn't one of these things where like the state government said, we'll give you $10 billion if you bring a stadium here. It wasn't anything like that. This was like a straight up kind of like, 
we will take on all the costs and the benefits will be shared by everybody. And, um, and so like the reason I bring this up is one of the things that I'm sure you ran into this too, the remarkable overnight conversion to purist libertarianism <laughs> among so many people who are like, oh, I guess I'm just the kind of person who doesn't think that the state should be giving giveaways or carve outs for big corporations, blah, 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 blah. And purely pretextual, right? I mean, there was just no way that these people felt this way, as Charlie says, three years ago, never mind 30 years yeah. ago. No, no one, libertarians were not, you know, lighting the torches to get rid of this thing ever. And, yeah. the, and so the, the libertarian sort of limited government argument is entirely pretextual and they undersell it. They, they undermine it themselves when they say Soto Voce. Oh, and by the way, this probably won't go into effect because right. we're going to work something out. I was like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> so you're a passionate libertarian purist, but you're also willing to like sort of say this was all theatrics and performative stuff and you actually don't want to follow it through. It's, just like, it's, a, it's a very frustrating thing. It's, it's punching jello, you know, to fight. Well, yeah. I mean, and if it was some sort of purist thing, you would then have that they would be eliminating all of the districts and not just Disney and whatever few other ones they tacked on. But I'm glad you brought that up because this is, when, when we say special districts and things like that, it, it raises sort of like this vision of the way states try to lure manufacturing. You know, if you come here, we're going to give you the land and you're not going to pay, you know, you're going to get this giant tax break. And no, this is something, you know, Florida has just a ton of these special districts. I think, you know, one of them was the, one of them is the villages where I think, uh, you know, where DeSantis was when he announced some recent legislation, maybe even this legislation. Daytona Speedway is another. Orlando International Airport is another. Right. So this is kind of the way Florida does business in a lot of ways. So it's not quite the same as that sort of pure crony ca capitalism that um, I don't like and a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks right, rightly don't like. So it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So it's even in that, in, in a lot of ways, that makes it even less justifiable <laughs> because, you know, you would have a better argument if it was this sort of pure crony capitalism. But even then, you can't uncrony yourself for unconstitutional reasons, you know, just to make it. And a lot of people just can't can't seem to get this idea that if I don't have an underlying right to the thing, that I still have a right for it not to be revoked for unconstitutional reasons. And to to make it super, super, super simple, and this is something I, I think a good way to put it in your mind. Under no circumstances could a state say to a company, you're going to have a special tax district unless you have a black CEO. Mm -hmm. Okay, right? Well, everyone would go, oh, that's absolutely, uh, you know, that's unconstitutional. <laughs> this is a very similar kind of analysis. It's you can have a special district unless you engage in, per in expression I don't like. Mm -hmm. Well, Okay, I mean, it's not as stark and gross and awful as something like explicit racial discrimination, but the analysis is very simple. It, I can have it. I can. It can be a, something that I don't have a right to in the abstract, but I also have a right for it not to be revoked or denied on the basis of unconstitutional conditions. And this is something. That, you know, I've tried to point out and new, people really don't want to hear this is actually um, a doctrine that conservatives have done a lot of work over the last 20 years, clarifying and making uh, 
uh, giving real teeth to the, and, and to then turn around and say, well, forget all that. <laughs> it's, um, you're, you're going to find that some of the precedents you set yourself, again, if Disney sues, don't know if they will, some of the precedents you set yourself will come around and bite you. Yeah. So like the, um, Lieutenant governor of Florida, did you see this interview with Eric Bowling? Yeah. Where yeah. She basically says everything can go back to normal if they have good politics again. Um, and, and basically that many words, which right. that cannot be, I mean, I'm just assuming that DeSantis as lawyers winced when she said that for sure, for sure. I mean, you know, look, there's, I, I noticed that I noted this in a piece that I wrote, uh, and there was a 1996 Supreme court case where you had a bunch of towing companies on a, on an approved list for the city and, and mayor asked the towing companies to support his reelection. And one of the towing companies supported his opponent and he finds himself off the list of approved towing companies. And the Supreme court said, no, you can't do that. Or as we would say, uh, advise your opinions, nah, dog, you can't do that. And it wasn't even close. So this was a seven, two case. Um, so, you know, one of the things about, uh, these kinds of cases is sometimes the company doesn't sue like Chick-fil-A didn't sue because they know they can accomplish the same thing through different ways. They don't, they don't want to go through litigation. For example, when San Antonio excluded Chick-fil-A from the airport, um, the backlash was so strong that ultimately, um, you know, the Trump administration intervened and San Antonio offered the slot, but Chick-fil-A had made other plans and moved on. Um, but, you know, so the company may or may not sue. I I would be a little surprised if they didn't, or maybe they've already got a political compromise they're working out on this. But uh, again, you know, what we're dealing with are a set of legal principles here that were largely created by litigation from conservatives and really carved out mo mostly, though not exclusively, by conservative-nominated justices that are directly implicated by all of this. And if you raise this on a place like Twitter, it's just, you know, the answer is, well, you know, shut up, you know, surrender, you're surrendering, you know, whatever. Yeah. The other thing I, again, I learned from Charlie, I didn't realize is that the way the legislation was re was written, they basically had to create a standard for why these improvement districts are not these improvement districts. And so they said everyone built before uh, agreed to before 68 um, right. because and that left like five and, and Disney being the most famous. But the other ones are like like water cooling plants or like, you know, like public sanitation <laughs> right. things. And it just seems to me that like at some point the politics of this are not going to be. So here's my theory. Here's my theory. Um, I know that we're all supposed to believe that that that. DeSantis is this heroic culture warrior who, who <laughs> with, you know, the, the Mobutu Seste Sekeo of, of culture war, where he, yeah. the all powerful rooster who leaves everyone quivering in his wake and that he did this all deliberately and all intentionally. I kind of feel getting back to the Twitter mob thing that he didn't want to do this. You know, he got the legislation he wanted. He had his victory, but it turned out that the mob wanted a pound of flesh and he felt mm -hmm. he had to be. You know, again, there go the people. I am their leader. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he had to sort of do a do a Ferris Bueller and get out in front of the parade of the mob and claim to be the leader on it and say he wanted this. But the 
politics of like giving this special dispensation to Disney don't didn't disappear. He when he did his stupid social media bill a year ago, he gave Disney yeah. a carve out. And right. presumably the politics of giving Disney a cop a carve out do a real carve out don't vanish now. Um and so I kind of think he is he's being led by the mob rather than than leading the mob. Well, and his great advantage is the mob, you know, uh, to refer to Ted Lasso, what's the uh the the be, the uh living creature with the shortest attention span or memory is the goldfish mm-hmm. um you know the mob is a goldfish and so he desantis rallies against social media and it's blocked by court like it's blocked that social media law is not in effect it was passed it's not in effect it's blocked and the goldfish mob doesn't care because right. it it got what it wanted, which was the law. Now, never mind the laws of no force or effect. You know, and and this is what's happening with a lot of these laws. So, you know, in the HB 1557, the Florida bill uh, involving LGBT issues, you know, everyone kept saying, we're protecting kids K through three, K through three, K through three. Well, what the law was aimed at wasn't even being taught K through three. So they were rallying to stop something that wasn't happening. And it wasn't just K through three, it was K through 12, you know, with vague standards and yada, yada, yada. But again and again, what you see in a lot of these laws that are owning the libs is that, you know, in a lot of these jurisdictions, you're rallying to stop something that isn't happening. Right. Now, it might be happening in New Jersey and all the listeners who are going to send me some curriculum from New Jersey, I've seen it. <laughs> or it might be happening in San Francisco if you're going to send me that curriculum or it might be happening in a hyperwoke private school. I've seen all that stuff. I know it's it's very real. It absolutely does happen in districts here and there and here and there and here and there. But a lot of these red jurisdictions where people are really moving decisively, they are winning by banning stuff that d- doesn't exist. And it, but again, it's this goldfish mentality and they're just moving. What's the next thing more? Let's ban more stuff and let's ban more stuff and let's ban more stuff. Um, and they're overreaching. Uh, Florida just stopped, passed this thing called the Stop Woke Act, which is getting no press compared to the Disney thing, because I guess Thor is more interesting. And, um, that thing is just an unconstitutional dumpster fire dealing with higher education. And that will almost certainly be challenged in court. And, and the weird thing is when, when DeSantis first, his first press release on the stop woke act, um, every bullet point of, of justification for it involved something that was happening outside of Florida. Every one of them, you'd think they could find one. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. sure there's something in Florida. You think you could find one, but Everything was something from outside of Florida. And so this is just happening again and again and again. And and the sad thing, Jonah, is a lot of this is squandering energy that could be used for real, actual, truly important systemic change, like really putting school choice on steroids. If you've got a lot of political will to do something about public education, and there's a lot of discontent about publication public education in general, even if a majority of people tend to like their own school, where is the real move for school choice, right? Where, where is that? But no, we're, we're running around passing speech codes. Yeah. Cause I, I think the metric for success is actually more to have 
X amount of Fox News and OAN and Newsmax segments <laughs> talking about how DeSantis is fighting this, that, or the other thing. The people don't follow the policy stuff. They don't care. It's just, it's a, it's a marketing thing more than anything else. All right. From Twitter mobs to Twitter itself. Um, <laughs> where do you, um, where do you put your level of anxiety about Elon Musk buying Twitter? Um, there are people on Twitter who have it on a zero to 10 scale, have it around 36 end of democracy end of everything, you know? Um, and then, um, and then there are, there are other people, you know, it's a horseshoe theory. The, the, the people who are wildly excited about it, I think are as, as rational as the people who are wildly angry about it because they're both, I, I tweeted this yesterday. I think, you know, that basically running Twitter successfully is the Kobayashi Maru of, <laughs> of digital <laughs> platforms. Yes, yeah. it can't, it can't be done, right? It's the no, no. win situation. So where do you come down on it? Uh, well, on my concern over Elon Musk, Elon Musk owning Twitter, my concern over his effect on Twitter is so low. It can't be registered on an electron microscope. I, I, what he does to Twitter, I really, I, I, I am so unconcerned about that. The only thing I'm concerned about with him owning Twitter, he's, he's now going to own Twitter, Tesla, and SpaceX. And we all know he needs to prioritize SpaceX. Right. So, right. so he needs to be focused on getting us to Mars, not on moderating Twitter. But the problem with Twitter, look, Twitter has, there are multiple instances of unfair moderation at Twitter. Um, Going all the way back to the Hunter Biden stuff, I mean, you know, we called out the weird Twitter rationale for for censoring that laptop story um, that, you know, basically where they said, uh, well, we don't allow hacked materials, but they had just recently permitted the New York Times stories about Trump's tax returns to go everywhere. Right, right. So, yeah, there are moderation decisions that Twitter has made that are pretty biased and arbitrary. Um, but the real issue with Twitter is not its moderation. It's much more its sort of composition. It, it's a far-left social media platform. And, and so what that means, and that has a really toxic effect, I think, on both of the left, on the left and the right, and in, in different ways. I'm, um, Manhattan Institute, Brian Riedel said, you know, he had this really great tweet. He said that, the Twitter overall user base is so democratic that it would tie Hawaii and Vermont for the most liberal state. Right. And its users, its actual power users are so democratic that they match the second most democratic congressional district in America. And that has this weird effect on both right and left online. I think on the left, it gives them a feeling of kind of false ascendancy, you know, that, that, Everything is on their side, that they are the consensus and the consensus isn't just left of center, it's really left. And then, you know, it gives the right this kind of constant sense of emergency. Um, you know, I wrote that it's sort of the feeling you might expect if you spent all your entire life in Barbara Lee's congressional district in Berkeley. And so it kind of drives both sides crazy in this, in different ways. And then at the same time, the culture of the place is just very nasty and malicious. And I don't know what Elon Musk is going to do about that. It's a broken culture of the website and whether or not you allow the Babylon be on, 
isn't going to do anything to that underlying culture of the website. And I, so I think Twitter is pretty broken and, and I don't know what any person can do about it. So you're uh, pretty invested in this whole first amendment brand of yours. Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, it's almost as strongly associated with, with, with your reputation as, as, as support for the third amendment is with mine. And, um, (laughs) well, you seem more successful than me then. (laughs) Um, so an absolute free speech platform, let's just that, you know, like it, that is only limited by first amendment principles. And I've heard you talk about this a bunch of times, right? So like you can't advocate violence. You can certainly, you know, a private entity can regulate or censor hate speech, all these kinds of things, right? If you have a more expansive view of what crosses the line, and that's what I think a lot of people are scared about with Elon Musk, you're still going to end up doing content moderation. Yeah. You're just, you're just going to have to. And the problem with Twitter has always been sort of a Gresham's law of the comment sections, which is the, the crappiest commenters. <laughs> drive out the best commenters and so someone will you know like he's a rich guy but he just dropped 44 or 54 billion dollars on this thing someone's going to explain to him that if it's all neo-nazi videos and and you know and really leaning into the new craze of sunburning your testicles to own the libs (laughs) i just don't know that like a lot of normals are going to want to be on the site anymore and that'll be a problem for him so he is he's I mean, even Parler, right, had to do content moderation really, really yeah. quickly, and yeah, um, and so maybe it, it errs a little more to the right of center than it currently does. But it's, it, I just I, this is why I can't get excited about this one way or the other because it's the beast itself that is going to require content moderation. Yeah, and Twitter, so Twitter has a problem with toxicity that is not specifically related to content moderation in the in the sense that. If if you are the sort of main character for the day or whatever, or in, in any given Twitter subculture, you can be subjected to a barrage of malicious cruelty that doesn't violate right. Twitter's terms of service and wouldn't violate Elon Musk's terms of service and wouldn't violate it's just the nate the the nature of the platform itself. And it's and the other thing is that's one of the reasons why I think this thing. It, this is kind of a, a broken website uh, and why it hasn't grown. If you, if you look at Twitter's actual ranking of social media, it's behind Pinterest. Yeah. It's behind Telegram. It's behind Snapchat. It's behind like half a dozen different uh, Asian or Chinese, um, you know, uh, social media companies. It is way behind TikTok. It's light years behind Instagram. It's, and the reason is it's not a fun place. And, and for some reasons that are kind of unique to the way the platform works, it's also happened to be the place where every journalist is or almost every journalist and almost every congressional staffer. And, and that's kind of its cachet. And that you can't build a social media colossus on that. And, and the problem is, I don't know about you, I don't know about you, Jonah, but almost every person I know who's on Twitter wishes there was another place to be where they could replicate sort of the advantages of the site, which is sort of instant access to their peers' thoughts without the downside, which is the pile-on 
culture that's constantly present. And, and until Twitter can deal with, and it's not a content moderation viewpoint issue, um, until Twitter can deal with that sort of malicious pile-on mentality that dominates the website, um, I think it's got a low ceiling compared to many of these other social media companies. Yeah, I mean, an overwhelming majority of Americans don't tweet, right? And yeah. Why would they? Right. And, and that's, I mean, this is a point Megan McArdle was making recently on here about how if you took even a, like a really, really viral Twitter mob that was really into it, very rarely would it be more people than filling a, a really good sized Texas high school football stadium. Yeah, that's right. Somehow our politics mm-hmm. are having to sort of be driven by this kind of thing. Um, um, is very weird. Um, so like if, if, if Musk had bought it and then just handed the keys to you, what would you do with it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I, because the, the advantage of Twitter, as I said, is unlike Facebook or Instagram, it has an easy format for accessing your peers, um, thoughts and ideas and accessing the work, the work of your peers. And you can see why, Congressional staffers and members of Congress would would be drawn to that because then they're going to have they have instant access to sort of an array of media right at their fingertips. The problem you have is um, the thing that then draws the audience is that everybody in theory has access to that same thing. But the mm-hmm. thing that makes it repulsive is that the worst of the comment section then manifests itself instantaneously. So. I, 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 Jonah, I've literally given more thought than a healthy person should give to this <laughs> very idea. And the best that I can think of is, are, are there ways in which you can deal, you can, you can tweak the algorithm in such a way that, well, I, I've had a couple of ideas and I don't know if these would work or not work. One is you can't quote tweet at all unless you click the link. Mm-hmm. In other words, because one of the central ways of piling on these days is that's the quote tweet, right? Um, that's the new ratio is, is the quote tweet. So no quote tweeting unless you c- actually cl- click the link. Well, just like raising that one little bar. And, and the reason why I say that is, you know, I've been the subject of more than one Twitter pylon. And every time I'm the subject of a Twitter pylon, I look at the metrics and it's always amazing. I, I might have a tweet with 2.2 million impressions. It means mm-hmm. it's been seen 2.2 million times. It might have almost 100,000 engagements and five or 6,000 le- link clicks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the worst of Twitter. So I do wonder if you begin to diminish the way in which you can engage with something unless you have at the very least click the underlying source material might be, might raise, um, might raise a barrier, but then you're in this catch 22 commercially where the more you raise a barrier to engagement, the more you're going to raise a barrier to, you know, involvement on the platform itself. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know that there's a great solution. I think that, um, you know, I'm very much of a, I'm a, I, I, I do not want to see politically biased, content moderation. At the same time, I do think of what are creative ways to deal with intentional personal harassment, um, 
which is the thing that keeps an awful lot of people away from the platform? What are the ways to to limit the ability of an individual to engage in personally harassing behavior? Um, these are these are issues that I think are are that's where I would that's where I would go. Limiting the ability to to engage with people without engaging with source material and limiting the ability to engage in relentless personal harassment. Those are the those are the two issues that make the place so ridiculously toxic. But the question again is what kind of commercially viable platform do you have left? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, the thing is not commercially viable now. I mean, that's right. again, it's that's it it that's what I mean by the Kobayashi Maru. It's just like it's like literally set up to not work. And people don't realize that its cultural profile is huge, but compared to actual big tech companies, it's a rounding yeah. error, you know, compared yeah. to Facebook or Microsoft or any of that kind of stuff. Netflix. Yeah. I do like how you know how Elon Musk wants to open up the algorithm so that people can see what it does. And I was talking to Yuval about a similar argument about this about Facebook a while back and and he made the point which I thought was a good one, which is that, you know, we went through something like this with like transparency transparency and budgeting, where yeah. we said we're gonna show people our math on how we do the budget. <laughs> looks like 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 neither of us would look at like the open source code for the algorithm and be like ah now i understand what it does (laughs) right i mean it's um anyway and because none of us will understand it so this is what's going to happen and you can just write it out so somebody's going to open up the source code and i saw on twitter that someone said when elon musk opens the source code and it was a picture of the matrix Uh uh-huh from you know just all these symbols and glowing glowing symbols then you're going to have these explainers by people who you don't know if they understand the algorithm or not. Right, right. But they're going to say they understand the algorithm and it's going to demonstrate and prove once and for all whatever underlying you know bias they had at the beginning of it. And then that'll be shared all over the place, the algorithm exposed, and you'll have no way of knowing yeah. whether that person knows what they're talking about. I mean, I would trust probably a reporter from Wired to look at it, you yeah, know, someplace like that. But like for the most part, I don't, I wouldn't trust, you know, like the Daily Wire's piece on it. I'm not sure I would just. Oh, speaking of which, I, I mentioned, I teased this before, you know, we're both sort of friendly with Ben Shapiro and all that. But I got to say, his position on the the Disney stuff, I just find it ironic, right? Because he has just started an entertainment studio where they're going to make movies yeah. and other mm-hmm. entertainment that is going to be jam packed with family values and and um and the right politics right and and his position is that disney needs to be punished for creating content with the wrong politics and <laughs> i it does not seem obvious to me that this isn't just inviting the whirlwind to come back on i mean presumably tennessee is not going to give them a hard time for their no. their content <laughs> but um the or principle still holds. Yeah. I mean, well, you just used a word principle that is of diminishing purchase. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think the, you know, look, the bottom line is a punitive action against a company because of its politics is something that uh the conservative movement has been fighting for 20-ish years. And now it's just flipped around in those jurisdictions where where Republican politicians hold sway, and now it's use your power to punish. And 
you know, that, what I keep going back to is, you know, look, if you keep trying that, you're, you're going to lose. You're just going to, you're going to, companies are going to go to court and you're just going to get beat. Yeah. But, you know, that goldfish mentality that, well, you're still going to get tr- credit for trying. You're going to get credit with the Twitter mob for, for trying. And, and to circle back to Twitter, um, I think political movements that get consumed with the zeitgeist on that website are short-lived and inherently unstable. <laughs> and, right. and, you know, you're seeing this even, you're seeing this in blue spaces right now where um, I'm fascinated by what's happening in San Francisco. You know, if you, if you were only on Twitter and you were only on left-wing Twitter, you would think this movement of hyper woke school boards and progressive prosecutors had some irresistible cultural momentum. And this was the future. And now, you know, you've had the San Francisco recall of the school board members, and that's not Republicans recalling those school boards. Those are progressives. And now you've got this recall of this progressive prosecutor um, that's likely to succeed. Someone else was telling me the LA prosecutors likely next. These are movements that were built around an online, an online culture that doesn't translate well in the real world. Yet it can have success for a time, but it's inherently unstable because it's so far outside of normal voters' normal experiences. I'm fading fast here, but um, we haven't had a chance to talk about it. Have you seen the prequel trailer for Game of Thrones? I have seen the prequel trailer for Game of Thrones. My basic view is this. I will, I will watch it, even if it's pretty bad, but I'm, <laughs> I, I don't think that it's going to be pretty bad. Is there anything else that you're watching now? I mean, uh, you're the one who told me, you know, so David and I have been part of this um, admiration society for... Uh, last kingdom for a long time now um and they just had their last episode of the tv series but you're the one who told me it was going to be a movie which is very exciting yes 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 and unfortunately i have not been able to finish the last season of the last kingdom yet because of travel and it's one of those shows that i can only see with my wife i can't oh, really? race ahead yeah, yeah so i'm loving it so far um i'm loving it so far but uh, I'm going to miss it. I'm, I'm glad they're going to have a TV. I'm glad they're going to have the the movie, but I'm going to miss this series. I think uh, it was great. Absolutely. I mean, I really do. I and mean, like it, it actually helped you learn a little bit about medieval England and that I didn't, I mean, like who knows? I mean, look, I'm sure they took a lot of license, but like ninth century England is not something I was really up to speed on. Um, and, uh, and it, it sent me down many, many sort of Wikipedia rabbit holes looking up, you know, various things. So I, I have a quick, I have a quick, um, observation about another upcoming movie. Okay. I, I have a theory. I think that, uh, Tom Cruise is about to, uh, he's about to have a second coming of a perfect pop culture moment with Top Gun two. Hmm. So Top Gun one happens when in the height of the cold war, makes us, you know, right at this, you know, the renaissance of the American military and morning in America, America, you know, America really reasserting itself in the, all of these Cold War tensions. And it makes American, the American military and the Navy in particular, just look incredibly, you know, badass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here we have 
a renaissance or a resurrection of great power rivalry. There's war in Europe, and he's about to come to the silver screen with a movie that's going to make our military look extremely overpoweringly awesome. And I think that that might be a a pretty good culture. I think this is a pretty good cultural time to do it. Who are we fighting in? in, in is it Russia in this? I have no idea. I, have, I don't know any of the underlying story. I just know there's a mission, Jonah, uh-huh. and all the best pilots are brought in and they bring in a maverick to train him. Gotcha. But he's not a teacher, Jonah. He's that's not right. a teacher. And fireworks will ensue. So that's <laughs> that's all I know. Those who can't do teach and he can do. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, it, just, it drives me crazy. I really hate the invent fake European countries conceit. Um, True, which you get a lot of um, and these kinds of things. I, I, I assume they won't do that. I feel like there's other pop culture stuff. I mean, just I'm, I'm trying to obey the forms here because historically, <laughs> when you come on, we 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 uh, pander to the five percent of the audience that really wants to hear us talk about this. <laughs> well, the it, Batman. We I still haven't seen it. I'm saving oh it my for gosh. my daughter. Um, okay, okay. I agree. I mean, talk about shows to save. My wife's been in uh, Eastern Europe. All for about 10 days, something like that. So I haven't watched any of the new uh, season of Better Call Saul. I'm saving all of that. I haven't watched the end of Severance, which I'm less excited about, but I'm sort of bought in. Um, or even Top Chef, which we watched together, but um, that's <laughs> n- neither here nor there. Oh, oh, so did you end up watching Raised by Wolves? Finishing it? I, I am in season two right now. Okay. So and, that's my travel show. That's and I was correct show. when I warned you that it just gets weirder, right? <laughs> i can't just it it is it is uh, it is really compelling because you just almost can't believe your eyes yeah yeah and it's but it's also like it's weirdly uncomfortable like it is i I don't i I can't say i don't enjoy watching it because it's propulsive and it makes me want to get to the end and all that kind of stuff but there are just scenes where i just like this is gross i you know like this is terrible i don't I'm not enjoying these images <laughs> you know, in front of me, but it is a weird, weird, weird show. The end, the end of season, it, it, I would put it this way. You're talking about it begins tonally weird, moves to substantively weird, and then by the season finale of season one, it becomes just objectively weird, unbelievably bizarre. Yeah. 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 And also, I mean, I don't know where you are in the middle of season two, but it's, there's stuff in it that is just sort of really dark and sad. And mm-hmm. for listeners who don't know, this is some, it's a Ridley Scott series on HBO called Raised by Wolves. And it's about androids who take human to raise on another planet as a sort of to save the human race. And I cannot, I cannot actually describe the weirdness <laughs> of, of everything. It is such a strange, strange thing. Um, and I think if you watch the first episode, you'll at least understand why I say it's strange, but it gets stranger. I mean, really, really stranger. So do you have any other burning hot pop culture things that you need to get off your chest? Are you looking forward to the Doctor Strange thing? Oh, I look forward to all of them, Jonah. I'm uh, looking forward to Doctor Strange. I'm looking forward to Thor Love and Thunder. I'm looking forward to all of it. Um, yeah, I, you know, but it's funny just to circle back because, hey, look, we're circling back. That's all Disney, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is where Disney, this is where Disney would really feel like it has to change as if 
Thor Love and Thunder flops or yeah. Doctor Strange flops. And why does it flop? It's not because it got bad reviews. It's not because it's not, you know, weird version of Doctor Strange or a, a weird version of Thor, but because people are sick of Disney, which I don't think is going to happen. I don't either. Yeah. Because again, going back to all this Twitter stuff, a lot of this is just taking place totally removed yeah. from people's lives. Just totally removed and and this other thing about twitter is what ends up happening is those of us who are on the site you'll go to through two three four twitter news cycles and people will not even know anything about the first one Mm -hmm. in out in out in you know the real world and and it's so important i think and i just worry that too many journalists just don't have relationships with people who are not in that world and have no sense of how removed they are and Twitter is. You know, I still go back to this um, Nate Cohn piece at the onset of the Democratic primary where he said, the Democratic primary electorate is one-third online, two-thirds offline. Mm -hmm. And the one-third online is more progressive than the median Democrat, and the two-thirds offline is more moderate and conservative than the median Democrat. And only one... Democrat ran for the two thirds. Yeah. All the others were running for the one third and the one who ran for the two thirds won in a route after, you know, faltering early on, but won in a route. And I think there's a really important lesson there. Yeah. The whole thing was so strange. I mean, we don't need to sink, um, like a chud back into the sewer of rank punditry, but, um, (laughs) the democratic primaries in 2000 were so weird in so far as, Hillary Clinton won in 2016 the Democratic nomination. And, and look, and we both think Hillary Clinton is pretty far to the left and we're not fans of Hillary yeah. Clinton. But basically all the combatants in 2000, in 2020, were trying to capture the lane of Bernie Sanders who had lost. Yeah. And, um, and I never got a great answer out of any Democratic strategist I talked to about that other than this sort of basically... The, this very online sort of bubble thinking, um, you know, Buttigieg could have come out as a, I mean, the smart play for Buttigieg would have been a gay Joe Manchin, right? Yeah. A really culturally conservative dude who just happens to be gay. So he wins all the points for the gay part with the identity politics of, of the democratic party. But other than that, he's like this sort of good government. I mean, he's a little too wonky, but that kind of thing. Um, and it's just, it's just astounding to me that Joe Manchin is probably the, arguably the most dem- popular Democrat in the, in the democratic party with the people who aren't online <laughs> yeah. and and so <laughs> AOC and all those people hate him and want to purge him from the party when they're the ones who would probably help the democratic party more if they were purged from the party. But well, you know, it's just, it's very hard to outgrow high school in, in the sense that, I mean, we, our peers always exercise disproportionate influence on us. And Twitter is a giant cauldron of peer pressure. Yeah. And, so that's what I mean when you've got all of the staffers and all of the journalists on there together. It's a giant factory engine of peer engagement and peer approval or disapproval. And that always has a disproportionate impact on people, far more than what they might know about the truth of the abstract about everyone else out there. And I think it's one of the reasons why you you see this, this same thing happen. The voters weigh in. And 
like an Eric Adams wins in New York, or there's the recall in San Francisco. And for a day or two or three or four online, you'll see this, whoa, wait a minute. Let's listen to David Shore again. <laughs> or yeah, yeah, yeah. And then fi- day five or six, seven later, the goldfish mentality kicks back in and everything's about, you know, policing, um, you know, making sure you're, you're policing that people are properly on the left or policing that people are angrily enough on the right. And, and that's then, then the peer engagement starts to drag. It's like, what's that line from Godfather? Just when I thought was, I was out, you pulled me back in. That's constantly what's happening because those are your peers. It's yeah. peer pressure and it's really hard to re- into, it's really hard to resist peer pressure. And, and you know, that, that's the fundamental underlying dynamic that just keeps yanking people towards extreme extremism and anger in our line of work. Yeah. All right. Well, on that cheery note, I'm going to set you free. Um, <laughs> I got to go lie down for a little bit if I'm going to do this Fukuyama thing. And oh, um, uh, you should take a look at this book, by the way. I mean, obviously, I'm going to talk about this a great deal in a few in an hour. But um, his 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 history of the intellectual history of liberalism is actually really very useful. It's like a high end college course that's very clearly written that helps you sort of come to it. But um, it's it's. I got my disagreements with him, but I, I think it's really a useful book. I've got it. I can't wait to look at it. And his other, just his book, End of History, is one of the more misunderstood yes. <laughs> books of our time. Uh, he actually forecast a lot of what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. So. All right, David French, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. And um, um, we'll obviously have you back, you know, because it's like, <laughs> why wouldn't I? <laughs> Happy to do it, Jonah. All right, my thanks to David for coming on in a pinch. And um, I am sorry if I am a little less engaging than normal because um, I just, I really feel crappy. Um, And so I'm not going to bother you along. Um, But thanks again to David. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for our Francis Fukuyama Palooza. Um, Assuming I don't uh, pass out in the middle of the conversation. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.